Paul is going to make mention of running. He likes verbs of movement. He uses them often, walking, running. He uses them as a a metaphor for, for life, for the Christian life especially. And he's concerned with how well we're walking or how well we are running. Earlier in Galatians 2, he was concerned for his own running. He feared, because the Galatians seemed to be abandoning the gospel, he feared that he had been running in vain. That he had been wasting his his time and his life on his ministry to the Galatians if they were just going to abandon the gospel that he preached. In today's verses, he's commenting to the Galatians directly, you were running well, he says. You were running well. Paul seems to be concerned that the past quality of their running is not the same as the present quality of their running. So let me begin with this this morning. Ask you to consider how well you are running. How would you evaluate your own running? If the Apostle Paul were to write a letter to you, would he say that you are running well? Would he say that you had been running well? Probably before we could even answer that question, we've got to ask the question, what what does it even mean to run well? What does that look like? What would a person's life who is running well, what would that look like? What would it consist of? Would, Would their life be all put together? Would it be morally upright, obedient? Would it be successful, victorious? We don't have to worry or wonder much longer. We're actually going to dig into these verses to see what it means to run well. So let me ask you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. These six verses in chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. These are the very words of God. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. May God bless the hearing and the teaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray. Lord, that kind of stings our ears to hear it. It's offensive. 
And even as, as we read through Paul's words, they seem choppy and, and disjointed. As if he's frustrated and grasping for the words to address these dear ones that he loves. And to see them not abandon the gospel of grace. Lord, would you help us to process all of this this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to make sense of it all, to to have an understanding of what was motivating Paul, of what he was trying to communicate. Lord, that you would help us to run well. That that would be the end result of our spending time in these verses is that we would run well. Only you can accomplish this, and we ask you to do it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. If we keep these six verses plugged into their larger context within this letter, it will be fairly easy for us to understand what it means to run well. Uh, Two weeks ago when we began chapter 5, we found the theme of these verses in this general area of the letter is freedom. We saw it in verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore in that freedom. And then even in the verse that comes after today's passage, verse 13, it's almost bookends of freedom, if you will, for these particular verses. Paul's going to say, for you were called to freedom. All right, so part of the Galatians running well, part of our running well, has to do with running in, living in the freedom that Christ intends for us. For us to not give up on it, for us to not give it back, for us not to exchange it for more constraint or more slavery or more bondage. Right? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to be free And then to give it back and to live as if you're not free. Kids, do you look forward to being free one day? When you'll be grown up, right? And you move off, right? To college, to a place of your own. Can you imagine the freedom that you'll have then? You can eat what you want, when you want, right? Second piece of cake, no problem, right? Don't feel like eating your peas, no problem. Go to bed when you want, get up when you want, dye your hair blue if you want, right? Freedom, right? You can't wait for it. Now, this is the part where I'm supposed to say, now, boys and girls, along with freedom comes responsibility. But you'll learn that soon enough. So I'm not going to say that. But I will get you to do this for me, though. Imagine, if you will, that you're out on your own. You've got your own job, therefore your own money, your own place. Freedom. But you pick up the phone and you say, hey, mom, I was thinking about going to the mall and buying a new pair of shoes. Would that be okay with you? 
or, or, or hey, Dad, some friends and I want to go to the movies tonight. Think that's okay? Or, or what if me, right? I've been free for a long time, right? What if I picked up the phone one night and called my mom, who's here this morning, and I said, Mom, I really want to stay up late tonight and watch the rest of this ball game. Is that okay? I, I know it's late. That's, absur- that's absurd. That wouldn't make any sense at all. It's inappropriate. It's not what someone who has grown up and moved out and is free, it's not the kind of thing that they do. I think that's kind of what Paul was feeling about the Galatians. The absurdity. The, he can't even process it. When he thinks about it and he starts talking about it, it comes out all disjointed and choppy like these verses were. Right? It seemed kind of random. It seemed kind of almost disjointed thoughts. These things that keep popping into his mind as he's trying to process how absurd it is what they are doing. They're, they're not calling their parents for permission to do things. But they were looking to the law to do inappropriate things for them. To, to, they're looking to their performance and their, to their obedience to do things and to provide things for them that were inappropriate for free people. The Galatians were not living, to borrow the language from the last two weeks, they weren't living scandalously free. They weren't living with the freedom for which Christ had set them free. They, they were exchanging it for more bondage, more constraint, more slavery. And friends, that is not running well. That is not running well. So, so living in freedom from the, the context of, of Galatians is what it means to run well. But even specifically from this very first verse in the verses that we're looking at today, Paul draws a, a real clear connection about what running well must be. Verse 7, right? You were running well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? So I hope some of you are happy, right? You, you've been uh, a little unsettled and displeased with some of the comments that I've made the past two weeks about obedience. Well, here you go, right? Paul's coming with guns a-blazing, and I'm joining in with him saying, you better obey the truth. Is that what you normally think of in terms of your obedience, right? Obeying the truth. What, is, what does that mean? All right. Well, think about all throughout this letter. When Paul has referenced the truth, what's he talking about? All throughout this letter, the truth is synonymous with the gospel. In fact, many times it's lumped together in one phrase, the truth of the gospel. So Paul's saying, you were running well, but someone hindered you and kept you from obeying the gospel. Next logical question, how does one go about obeying the gospel? What does it mean to obey the gospel? And this is easy because Jesus told us very clearly. very first thing he said in his earthly ministry, Mark records it in in chapter 1 of his gospel. 
Jesus steps on the scene and he says, I'm here, in essence. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So obeying the gospel consists of two things, repentance and belief. So let's break it down, keep it simple. The first one, repent, right? You've probably heard teaching on this, sermons on this before, right? So you probably know that to repent is to do an about face. It's a, it's a 180. I was heading down this path. But I've reached this place in my life where I'm making a conscious decision. My desire has shifted and changed. I no longer want to pursue this path. I will now pursue this path. The exact opposite. That's repentance. So half of our response to the gospel is an about face. It's a, a turning away from our old way of life. Right? Turning away from our evil deeds. That's the kind of thing you have to repent from, right? Evil deeds, drunkenness, debauchery, fornication, right? And some of you here this morning, hearing this perhaps for the first time, hearing about the free gift available to you in the gospel of Jesus, you in fact do need to turn from your evil deeds, from your drunkenness and your debauchery and your fornication. Others of you, maybe even more of you, need to repent not of your evil deeds, but of your good works. Not of your drunkenness and fornication and debauchery, but your sobriety and your morality and your chastity. And I can tell by the looks on some of your faces, that's a little confusing to you. You think, repent of my good deeds? But that's what I had going for me. I'd worked so hard on those things. That was getting me closer. I was almost there. And you're saying, repent of it. I am. Because those good works will send you to hell just as fast, if not faster, than your evil deeds. If that's what you're relying on, if that's what you're banking on to make you right with God. See, Jesus would spend his entire earthly ministry trying to convince the miserable wretches and offenders on one side that they weren't beyond God's grace. And to convince the people with the most impressive of religious resumes that they hadn't even come close to meeting his holy standard. To convince them that God's acceptance and forgiveness couldn't be earned, only received as a free gift. And so friend, repentance certainly involves turning from evil. Oh, it absolutely does. But it also has to, has to, has to involve turning away from our own efforts to be good. Turn away from those things and receive the free gift through faith alone. 
which gets us to the second part of obeying the gospel. We repent and we believe. We place our trust in our Savior, in the one who lived and died in our place, and we rely on him and him alone. Right? This, in fact, is the only work that God requires for you to be saved. Right? One of my favorite little nuggets in the Gospels comes in John 6, uh, where folks are asking Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Right? And, and you can, the wheels are turning. They're wondering what kind of thing Jesus, what kind of list he's going to give them because they're ready to start checking things off. And this is what Jesus said. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's what obeying the truth looks like. Turning from self. Either the ways in which you were seeking to gratify yourself or the ways you are seeking to save yourself. Turn from them all and trust the Son. See, the Galatians did this initially. right? Paul says, you were running well. They did this. But Paul sees that they've turned to something else to try to complete what had gotten off to a good start. Uh, he said as much back in chapter 3. Uh, the first three verses. Um, oh, foolish Galatians, he says. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit. This is how you started. You were running well. And you now, are you now being perfected? By the flesh. Paul wants so badly to see the Galatians finish well. To continue running well. And you only do that by staying true to the course. Right? There's not two different ways of running. Right? There's not a, a beginner's running where you're trusting Jesus. And then you advance to a marathon level of running where you're doing it on your own. No, there's, there, there's one type of running. One type of running, start to finish. Right? You don't start out by trusting Jesus and then finish by your own hard work. Another great verse that, that I want to give you this morning, let it begin to sink into you as we try to wrap our minds and our hearts around the truth of this gospel, is Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you received Christ, so walk in him. Right? So how do we receive Christ? We've already seen through repentance and faith. Okay? So then how should we walk? See, there's that motion thing that Paul likes to do again. How should we walk? By our own effort, by our own hard work, by our discipline, by our commitment? No. By repentance and faith. By continuing to say, oh, Lord, here's where I've blown it. But I'm trusting the finished work of Jesus covers that and transforms that in the future. Right? I received him by repentance and faith. I continue to walk in him by repentance and faith. All right. That's how we run well. That's how we obey the truth through repentance and faith at the beginning and at the end and every point in between. 
So we're seeking to run well, we're living free, we're obeying the gospel, and another element of this is allowing ourselves to be offended. Not Facebook offended, like we're, we're offended at everything, right? Not that kind of offense. But the offense that Paul talks about here. Verse 11. This seems odd at first. I'm going to clear it up for you in a second. He starts off saying, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? All right, so apparently the false teachers, the ones who were hindering the Galatians, keeping them from obeying the gospel, apparently one of their tactics was to try to convince the Galatians that Paul is actually still okay with circumcision. He, in fact, is still encouraging folks to be circumcised. Oh, yes, he is. So go ahead and be circumcised. Paul is cool with it, they would say. And so Paul hears of this and he says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's my translation. It doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Because he knows he's still being persecuted left and right. The Jews hated him and they hated his law-free gospel. And Paul says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why all the beatings and stonings and arrests and imprisonments and being left for dead? How about all that stuff? That doesn't make any sense. Because see, if Paul were still saying, oh yeah, be circumcised, that's great. Faith in Jesus plus circumcision, that's great, I love it. Then the Jews would have calmed down. They would have begun to leave him alone. Paul says in the second half of verse 11 that adding circumcision to Jesus would remove the offense of the cross. Now, the cross was wildly offensive to Jews on a couple of different levels. One was just more of a, a cultural level, right? Of, of the times, the, the cross was cruel and, and brutal and crucifixion was reserved for only the vilest of offenders and anyone who was subject to that was was viewed as being cursed by God. Ugh, if he's up there hanging on a tree, he must be cursed by God. And so the Jews would look at that and they would think, how utterly improper for someone who's supposed to be a Messiah to meet such an untimely end as this. But it also goes deeper than that, the offense does. You know, on a spiritual level, on a spiritual plane, the cross offended the Jews and it offends us because of what it says about us. What does the cross say about you and me? It says that we have a problem and that it is so big and so great that we can't do anything to fix it ourselves. We have a problem so great that this ghastly, horrible scene of the Son of God hanging on a tree was the only thing that would do us any good. In just a few minutes when we close the service, we're going to sing the lyric, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. 
His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Folks, that's humbling. It wounds our pride to admit that our condition caused that to take place. But you know what would make it a little easier to swallow? A little less offensive would be if we just took the gospel and we put an asterisk at the end. Right? If we just said gospel, just a little asterisk, just a little fine print at the bottom, right? Just a little something that, that we could do, right? We would say, oh, Jesus, is, it's wonderful, right? What he did was great. It was almost enough. We just have a little bit that we need to add, right? It's like the picture of some beautiful thing that you've purchased, and then you see the fine print at the bottom when you get it home. Before you open the box, right? What's the fine print say? Some assembly required. Ugh. Is that what the gospel is? It's, it's the raw material. It's beautiful. We just got to put our finishing touches on it. Just a little effort on our part, a little obedience. Something small, say, circumcision. And again, if that's not your temptation, if that doesn't apply to you necessarily, it doesn't matter. Pick any little thing that you feel like you could do that would increase your assurance, your security, your, your acceptance before God, your standing with Him. Then your gospel, asterisk, can be less offensive because you've done your part. You've made your contribution to the effort. But be warned, however... that any less offensive gospel doesn't come from God. Verse 8, this, this persuasion, you've been persuaded to this, it's not from him who calls you. I'll give you three guesses from whence it does come, and your first two don't count. Our enemy would love nothing more than for us to trust ourselves. To think that what we do counts for something in this final equation, right? But let me tell you, folks, it's a trap. It is a trap of the enemy because he knows we will ultimately fail at that. And when we do, the guilt and the shame and the condemnation will come flooding in and drive a wedge in between us and Jesus that we will not likely overcome. This, is, this whole thing in Galatians is just a double disaster in the making of having folks working so hard, slaving away at their obedience and their performance, trying to earn acceptance with God. So that's half of the disaster. And the other half is to be damned in the end after all that hard work. I hope that, that you take this seriously. And that the Spirit presses it deep down into your hearts. Verse 9, it's another one of these choppy little things. It's like just sort of random things Paul keeps throwing out. So verse 9 is this pithy little saying about, about leaven, about yeast. Think about what a small, teeny tiny amount of yeast it takes to do its job. Right? A little bitty packet 
that I can never find in the cabinet because it's so small, right? Causes multiple loaves of bread to rise. The impact of the yeast is out of proportion to the other ingredients. And and I, I think now after having sort of meditated on these verses all week long, Paul mentions leaven here because the danger of watering down the gospel, of adding in our efforts, however small they might seem to be to us, the danger there of making the gospel less offensive is a disproportionate danger. It's going to have an effect in our lives far beyond what we imagine. I've mentioned to you before what the stakes are here. It's not just that we'll end up being less joyful Christians. It's that we'll end up being something other than Christian. The gospel demands that we be offended, that we feel the sting of our own inability so that we might bask in the wonder of his ability and his accomplishment for us. The truth of the gospel is so very offensive. Um, So think about that word offensive for just a second. Now, I don't normally play the Greek card. Oh, here's what the word means in Greek. Frankly, because I can't remember half of what I learned in seminary when it comes to Greek. Um, But this is a good one, right? And when I saw it this week, I just felt a little vindicated, actually. Right? So the Greek word here that Paul uses for offensive is scandalon. Huh. Think we got any English word from that? Talking about a scandalous gospel and scandalous freedom. That God himself would become a man. And would die a cruel death and do it willingly All because he loved us. And that all we have to do to benefit from that is just to receive it empty-handed as a gift. To not lift a finger for it. Not in the acquiring of it, nor in the maintaining of it. That's scandalous. It's a glorious and offensive scandal. Now, clearly Paul allowed himself to be offended by the gospel. But now let's look at verse 12. And you've been sitting there wondering, what in the world is he going to do with this? Well, Paul is offended by the gospel. But for lack of a better word, Paul is also offended for the gospel. Now this is definitely the crudest, rudest thing in any of Paul's letters. It comes from a place of deep emotion. Of deep love, actually, if you think about it. Love both for the Galatians, a a love for these folks that hates to see them abandon the gospel and throw their faith away. And also a love for Christ and a love for his beautiful and glorious gospel. What he says is, is shocking. Right, to say the least. Right? And, and we're not exactly sure that the message, the exact message that he's trying to communicate when he says this. Right? On the surface level, it's pretty obvious. They're making such a huge deal about circumcision, these false teachers are, that Paul's saying, hey, don't stop there with that tiny piece of skin. Just 
go the whole way, right? It's crude. It's, it's, it's crass. Um, some of the commentators point out that near Galatia was a, a local cult uh, whose priests had to become eunuchs at a big, huge festival. Perhaps what Paul is saying is knowing that they would have this cult sort of in their knowledge base. You're adding your efforts and your obedience to what Christ did. It's just as pagan. Might as well be part of a pagan cult. Maybe that's what he's doing. Perhaps he's thinking about the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 23, right? That says if a man, uh, if his uh, physical anatomy down there is not as it should be, right? He's not allowed to enter the temple. He's not fit for the presence of God. Perhaps Paul is saying, would that these folks were excluded from the congregation, from the people of God. We don't know exactly. Those are some good guesses, I think, from what I've read. But here's maybe an important question for us, a more important question. Are we similarly offended? Are we similarly offended when we hear the gospel being watered down? When we hear folks make comments about they're trying hard or what they're doing as if what Christ has done is insufficient. Do we love anyone as much as Paul loves the Galatians that we would go to battle over their misunderstanding of the gospel? Do we love Christ to the extent and glory in the beauty of his gospel to the extent that we would defend him and it from the very depths of our being. Right? When we hear moralism and, and good behavior and trying harder, masquerading as Christianity, do we dare say, now, now wait a minute, that's not what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you one final question to consider this morning. How can we know that we'll run well to the end? See, the Galatians started out okay. They, start, they were running well, but then they were hindered. How can we be confident that we'll run well to the end? Our, our confidence can ultimately only come from the one who calls us and the one who carries us. Look at these last two things here. One from verse 8. Right? He's saying this persuasion isn't from the one who called you. The sovereign Lord called you into this thing. It was his idea. It wasn't your idea. He called you into it. And then if you look at verse 10, Paul is so upset about all of this. He's even kind of disjointed, it seems, in these verses. He's pleading. He's making his case with all the energy that he can muster. But ultimately, where does his confidence have to lie? In the Lord. I'm confident in the Lord that when all this dust settles, you'll still be trusting and you'll still be obeying the gospel.
and not what these false teachers have thrown at you. That ultimately we would trust the sovereign Lord, the one who started us running well, that He will carry us to the finish line. He's sovereign over all. He'll bring judgment on those. He'll, that's literally what that word penalty there is. right? To those who've been stirring up all this trouble. So take that as a warning. right? If you would be one who would burden someone by saying, hey, in order to really be a Christian, you need to do such and such. Be careful. Be careful. Sovereign Lord's called us in His grace. He will carry us home by that same grace. So be confident, rest in this, that even your obedience to the truth of the gospel comes from Him as a gift of His grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, though Paul's thoughts seemed a little disjointed and perhaps minded as well, would you, Holy Spirit, take the, the truth of the gospel and by your grace would you cause us, would you enable us to obey it? To put all our eggs in the basket of our faith in Jesus. To repent, of course, of our evil deeds, but also of anything that we thought counted for anything but you. Help us to repent from it all that we might trust Jesus completely and that he might be exalted and glorified because of it. We pray in his name. Amen. Stand and